All right. Uh, let's pay attention now to the uh, passage that we just read and maybe give it some uh, second thought. Uh, Derek Kidner, who wrote uh, to me one of the best commentaries on Psalms that there is. And I know that um, not everybody likes commentaries as much as I do. And so that's okay. But if you want to get a couple of short commentaries on the Psalms, it's in two little books. They're small. You can carry them around with you. Look up Derek Kidner. The first 72 Psalms are covered in the first book, 73 to 150 in the second. And one of the things I like so much about his commentary is for every Psalm or piece of Psalm, he gives a title that he makes up that kind of, kind of like the ESV Bible does. If you have an ESV, you'll see not here in 119, but in most psalms, it gives you a made-up title that helps to summarize what the psalm's about. Well, Derek Kidner is the best titler of all the psalms, I think. And I was especially drawn to what he called this section that we read. He titled it this way. They glorified God in me. They glorified God in me. And I think that that summarizes verses 73 to 80 really well. They, who, who is they? Uh, the, David is thinking they is anybody outside of himself, uh, his fellow believers, those who are in his kingdom, um, his neighbors, his sons and daughters, his spouses, his, everybody who was within his orbit. They glorified God. Their praise and their boast was made about the Lord. And why did they do that? How did they do that? They did that in me or as a result of what God had done in me. Uh, if you'll notice the, the passage, look at verse um, 74 and then again verse 79 and you'll see this idea coming out. Those who fear you shall see me and rejoice. Because I have hoped in your word. So David envisions his life through all the trouble. Remember last week we talked a lot about affliction and the way God uses affliction. Uh, he still feels like an afflicted man because you see that in verse 75. He, he refers to affliction again. In faithfulness, you God have afflicted me. And yet in all of his troubles, he sees his life as an opportunity for him to follow God's word so that people will look at him and glorify God because of what they see. Same thing in verse 79. Let those who fear you turn to me. Why? That they may know your testimonies. They glorified God in me. Uh, in a sense, tonight, what we want to look at is where we ended this morning's sermon. This morning, we were talking about being born again. If you weren't here this morning, we were looking at John 3. And Jesus says, those who are born again come to the light because they want everybody to see that the works that they're doing have been done in God. That, that the born-again heart longs to give God glory by putting God's work on display in the way that we live our lives. And that's exactly what David is expressing here. Uh, Jesus, in another place, told all his disciples, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works. And right there, we, we might want to stop Jesus and say, hold on, Jesus, that sounds very self-promoting. Let your light shine. We, we all know those people who like to let their light shine. And sometimes it, that's not very humble, right? To let your light shine can be a very 
arrogant thing to do, but Jesus is talking about something different. Let your light shine before men so that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. So let's talk about that tonight in three ways. If you'll look at your bulletin, I want to do it by looking first at what our greatest desire as Christians ought to be. Secondly, I want us to look at where we should turn as we pursue this desire. And then lastly, I want us to see how God helps us to realize it, how he helps us to satisfy that deep desire. So first of all, what should be our greatest desire? Well, you probably guessed it. I've already kind of given it away. Our greatest desire is that our lives would somehow glorify God in the eyes of other people, that they would look at us and they would see something about our God, about our Savior, about our Father. Uh, verses 73 to 75 really makes this clear. In the middle of the verse, you have that great statement, may those who fear you see me and rejoice. He's confident, David is, that people will rejoice in God because they see him, because David has devoted himself, he says, to hoping in God's word. And the person who hopes in God's word, the person who puts all their eggs in the basket of God's word, if you will, will end up living a life that in some way points other people to God. He knows this. And yet, I want you to notice the reason why he knows this, or the reason why he's so excited about it. Uh, He tells us two or three really important things about God in those verses, 73 to 75. I wonder if you can find them. Uh, What does he say about God in those first three verses? He made me. me. And uh, I love how he says it too. Uh, He could simply say, God, I believe in the doctrine of creation, which would be a great way to say it because it's true. But he says it in a more personal way, doesn't he? Your hands... As if God had hands. Your hands have made and fashioned. Two words that he uses. Made and fashioned me. He's hearkening back to Genesis chapter 2. Remember? God took the dust of the earth and he, it says, he uses a similar word. It says he formed it into the man with his own hands. And then with that limp, lifeless ball of dust shaped like a man. God went down as close to that man's face as possible. He breathed into his nostrils the breath of life so that Adam became the first living creature, the first living human being. How personal can you get, right? God is a, is a hands-on God. And this is, this is something that excites David. David sees his life as having value and worth because that worth is derived from God who made it. And so he reasons, for my life to really live up to its full potential, I need to live in order to magnify that God who has so personally made me. Now this has a ton of implications, especially for life in the modern world, because um, most people agree that human life has value, but we do not agree as to why. And when we don't agree as to why... Um, well, we're not going to agree on what value is, what, um, what decisions uh, appropriately recognize that value and which decisions do not appropriately recognize. We're going to agree on almost anything else. 
even if we all say, yes, human life has value. Here, this is saying, human life has value because God touched it. In my mother's womb, you knitted me together. Which is another personal way of putting creation, right? God, God knitting. Did you know God was a knitter? God knitted me together. In the secret hidden places where before anyone saw me, before I ever saw the light of day, God saw me and God put me together. Therefore, I am fearfully and wonderfully made. I have value. My value doesn't come from where I was born or where I wasn't born. It doesn't come from whatever attainments I may have achieved in life. It doesn't come from really surface things like the color of my skin or the accent of my voice or any of those things. The value comes because God fashioned me personally. Now, here's the implication of that. If my value comes from anything else besides that, how is that going to direct me to live? This is something that our society's got to think about more deeply because the consequences of this are immense. For example, if my value comes from how the color of my skin or how tall I am or how am I going to live? Entitled, proud, bigoted, angry, self-righteous, right? Uh, if my value comes from anything except the great gift of God who is above and beyond all things and all human beings, it's going to set people against one another. Uh, it's going to equal a world where all people have value, but some have more value than others. Right? To slightly allude to the book Animal Farm. Yeah. All animals are equal. But some animals are more equal than others, is what it says in the animal farm. And that's true, right? You think about all the different political and all the different social movements that have come throughout human history that have pitted people against each other. What they were doing is they were trying to derive value from things that are other than God, whether politics or class status or racial or ethnic status. And, and, and if that is true... My life is about glorifying me. May people see me and rejoice in me because I have that thing that makes individuals valuable. David says no. Even though he was a king, he could have said, you know what, I, here's what it is. I'm rich. Here's what it is. I have the most wives. David could have said that. And that was, by the way, a status symbol in the ancient Near East. I and mean, that's hard for us to imagine. It's a, whole, it's a very different culture. But back then, that was like a way to show off for kings. He could have said, you got your wives, I've got hundreds of wives. It was a bad thing for David to have. And yet he could have done it. He could have boasted, but he, decided, he didn't. He didn't. By the way, on that topic, God greatly humbled David because... He had so many wives, and because he was unfaithful in his marriages. And y'all can read about that if you don't believe me. It makes for quite exciting reading. How God 
pursues David, chases him down, and convinces him. What you said in Psalm 119, David, you better, you're acting like you don't believe that. You better believe it. It is the fact that God made you and that God fashioned you that gives you value and therefore your life to be as valuable as it can be. You need to live to glorify God. Well, if you look down at verse 75, you'll see again, uh, he gives two more reasons why he's excited to glorify the Lord. What does he say? God's rules are righteous. Again, this was something David didn't fully live up to himself, but he knew it was true, and God wouldn't let him off the hook. He pursued him in discipline for everything he did in his life that was a contradiction to this. But he knew it in his heart. If God gave a rule, it's a right rule. It's a righteous rule. It ought to be kept by people. And then he says about God's faithfulness. God's faithfulness is true in all situations. Uh, we pointed this out last week. Uh, Eric uh, brought up this verse, beautiful verse. In God's faithfulness, you have afflicted me. Even in our affliction, God proves to be faithful. God's faithfulness does not change. There is no shadow of turning or variation due to change with God. Because of that, David says, look, I know my life belongs under him my life morally belongs under his rules my life in terms of how it's sustained belongs under his faithfulness because it's by his faithfulness that my needs are supplied my life itself is a result of his very personal hands-on creative power he fashioned me and he formed me therefore I want people to look at my life see me and rejoice in God if I aim at anything less than that, I've robbed myself, and I'm also guilty of attempting to rob the Lord. Uh, when, when the NASA is shooting off a rocket into space, um, if the, and I don't know much about this. Some of you all know more about this than I do, but I'm just thinking based on what little I know. I can imagine that a rocket, when it's set off on Earth, even if it's just like an inch or a centimeter off its flight path here. When you extrapolate that out into space, how far will it miss its target? Uh, inches here seems to me, if you just kind of do the, the math of it, the angles, an inch off here could mean many, many miles off, way down the line. And that's true here. Uh, when a person is thinking about why they exist, inches matter. Your answer to that question matters a great deal. A little bit off at the beginning can equal a whole lot off by the time you get to the end. That's why in our uh, shorter catechism, the most beautiful uh, part of, I, I think, of our catechism is the first question. What is the chief end of man? Simple answer, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Now, here's, the, here's what I want to get you to think about. One of the ways you know whether you believe that answer is how you pray when you're afflicted. Hmm. 
David is still feeling afflicted. How is he praying? Those who fear you shall see me and rejoice. Because in righteousness, in faithfulness, you have afflicted me. And then he rattles off several lets. Look there, verse 76 to 79. Let, 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 let. Several requests that are shaped by the glory of God in his life. Shaped by that goal. He's praying in his pain with an eye to see God glorify himself through the pain. One of the ways you know what your chief end really is, is how you pray in your pain. Now, I'm not saying that it won't be a fight. I'm not saying that it will be your first prayer in pain. I'm not saying it won't take a long time to get here, but I'm saying eventually, eventually, the heart that understands my chief end is to glorify God will eventually get to praying through the pain like this. God, let your name be exalted. Let your will be done in my life so that people may see and give glory to you. Here's the way Spurgeon puts it. He says, David is in deep sorrow here, apparently. But he looks to be delivered and made a blessing. He wants God to deliver him, but it's not just that he wants God to deliver him. He wants God to deliver him and make him a blessing. And therefore he makes his appeal to God as if God were his only friend in suffering. And oftentimes it feels that way, right? In suffering, we know we have friends, but often suffering has this tendency to isolate you, make you feel like you're alone, make you feel like no one can relate, because likely, no, I mean, no one else is you. And so no one else has your particular kind of suffering. Well, I'll tell you what, God knows. And you can go to God as an only friend, like David does, in deep sorrow, asking God not only to deliver you, but here's the key, asking God to make you a blessing for his sake. All right, let's look at the second thing. Uh, Where should we turn uh, as we pursue this goal of glorifying God? Well, let's look at the let's. All those let's in verses 76 to 79. David rattles off requests. Uh, whenever, and I also don't know much about sailing. I'm using all analogies that I don't know anything about tonight. So anybody who sails, correct me. But I can imagine that if you're sailing and suddenly a great windstorm comes uh, in the opposite direction, you can't just continue as you were and still move in the right direction. You have to make adjustments. Everybody with me? I believe it's true that you can actually sail against the wind if you set the sails right. And it'll be slow, and you have to do maybe like different patterns of movement, but you can get against a headwind in a sailboat if you set your sails right. But you've got you to gotta adjust them. When the wind shifts, you have to adjust the sails. And that's kind of what David is doing. He's with these lets. There, there are five of them, or excuse me, four of them. With each of them, he's adjusting his sails to a different aspect of God's blessing. Let's look at each of them as we go. Uh, First of all, he says, Let your steadfast love comfort me. Let your hesed love be near to me and give me the comfort that only you can give me according to your promise. So he's grounding it in God's word, God's promises 
uh, revealed to us what his love is like. And God, according to the promise that's found in your word, I want you to show me your love so that I would be comforted. I want you to assure me that you love me. That's the first let. And then in verse 77, he says, let your mercy come to me. This is a little different than the steadfast love. Uh, the mercy is God's pity, God's, God's tenderness towards people who are in trouble. He wants that mercy to come to him yet again. Why? What does it say? Let your mercy come to me that I may live. Okay, so he feels like he has lost his life. He feels like he is dead and dry and down in the dumps. And so he says, let your mercy, let this pity of God over the weak creatures come to me so that by that pity I might be lifted up again and have life. He's praying for revival. He wants assurance of God's love and he wants revival in his life. Verse 78, let the insolent be put to shame because they have wronged me with falsehood. I'll, I'll let you name this one, okay? Well, what is he praying for there? Let the insolent be put to shame. Justice. Give me justice, Lord. Remember, we talked about the insolent last week. They're the arrogant ones, the ones who defy God and also hate God's people. And they're giving uh, David a terrible time. And David is asking God to get justice on them because, he says, I meditate on your precepts. I'm over here meditating on your precepts. They are over there plotting how to destroy me. Do justice. And do them in as you lift me up. And then verse 79. Let those who fear you turn to me. Once again, let them turn to me that they may know your testimonies. What's he praying for there? The very thing we're talking about tonight, right? He's asking God to turn his situation around so that he would have the opportunity to serve others in his pain. That people would turn to him for help. And, oh, excuse me. and when they turn to him for help, that they would learn by turning to him what God's testimonies are all about. So let's lay them all out together. He's praying for assurance of God's love. He's praying for revival. He's praying for justice. And he's praying for an opportunity to serve other people. And there you have it. I'll, I'm serving it up on a platter, and I want you to think about that. Because that is what prayer and affliction looks like when we take seriously that our lives are not for ourselves, but for the glory of God. Instead of merely praying, God, fix it, which, which isn't a bad prayer, and I'm not speaking against that, but I'm saying, not just say, fix it. Help. Not a bad prayer. But the prayer that's aimed at this idea that people would glorify God in me doesn't just say help and fix it. It also says, remind me that you love me. Because if I know that you love me, I'll live different in this situation. If I don't forget that you love me, I'll handle affliction differently. Oh, revive me, God, because this affliction is killing me spiritually. It's racking my brain, it's weighing my heart down, and I just can't seem to get the daylight in my spiritual eyes. Lift me up. With your mercy, give me new life. 
and I'll be able to glorify you better. Lord, don't just fix it. Bring justice in this world. My case, because I'm being wronged, is just one example of many cases of many people being wronged in this wicked world. God, justice. Because if justice comes, you can be glorified in a better way than you are now. And God, don't just fix it. But give me an opportunity to have a voice in the life of somebody else who's despairing. Let them turn to me. When they fear you and yet are in despair, let them turn to me and I'll teach them. If you'll work in my life this way. All right, time out. Anybody pray that way? It's okay if the answer is no. Because you're in good company. Uh, this is something that has to be learned. This is not natural. Uh, this is something that, I mean, honestly, sometimes the best prayer is God help me to pray. When you don't know how to pray like this. I mean, that is, in fact, what the Bible tells us in, in Romans 8, where it says when we suffer, uh, the Spirit helps us in our weakness because we don't know what to pray for like we ought to. I mean, all we got is just a bunch of complaint most of the time. That's, all, that's as far as we can get. And the Bible says there that the Spirit helps us by even groaning for us. Groaning for us. Wordlessly. In other words, this is how indestructible the new heart of a Christian is. When you don't even know how to pray, your spirit will groan. And God will hear it. And carry out his will on the basis of his people's groans. But the groaning shouldn't be the goal. The goal should be to learn by the Spirit how to pray. And here's how to pray. Kingdom prayers. We already spoke a minute ago about the uh, first petition of the Lord's Prayer in the Catechism Review. Uh, Hallowed be thy name. That's where Jesus tells us to begin prayer. Hallowed be thy name. Let your name be glorified. That's what this looks like. Glorify your name through my affliction. Glorify your name through my relationships. Glorify your name through my parenting, through my marriage, through my terrible life situation right now. Glorify your name. Let your love come to me. Let your mercy revive me. Bring justice into the world. Give me an opportunity to share, even if it's not with my words, to, to share with my life in a way that would lift somebody else up. I was challenged by this this week, big time, and that's, that's why I'm eager to share it with you. And I hope that you're challenged by it. I hope that you, know, you think about these priorities the next time you are driven with some need it could be even in your eyes a small need but sometimes even the smallest needs can sometimes drive us to really just desperate prayers let words like this be your guide like, like start to think not just about yourself but think about yourself as one in whom God dwells and in whom he dwells for his sake and that'll help you all right let's look at the last thing because there's one last verse that we didn't look at, verse 80. This is the last thing David uh, prays in this section. Uh, 
Uh, and it really has to do with how God helps us to realize this goal ultimately. He says to God, God, may my heart be blameless. Blameless in your statutes that I may not be put to shame. When you hear the word blameless, what do you think? Pure, Pure. yeah, good. Perfection. Perfection. If I were to say right now, all the blameless people stand. <laughs> anybody? Would anybody stand? Probably not. And yet, that is the cry of David's heart. May my heart be blameless. Why? Because the blameless heart, he says, will never be put to shame. That's the end of verse 80. That I may not be put to shame. No matter what a person goes through, if his heart is blameless, if your heart is good, you can go through anything outwardly and you will never be put to shame. You'll never be undone by it. You'll suffer, you'll cry, you'll be heartbroken, but you will not be finally undone because your heart is like gold. Don't you want a golden heart? Now, sadly, I think when we hear verses like this, we think, oh, impossible. Uh, I could never get even close to this. I feel ashamed to even pray for a blameless heart because I know I won't have it, right? Often we think that way, don't we? Uh, it's a little bit like um, when I was a teacher, I, I learned very quickly that you've got to learn how to set the bar for kids high enough to where you're not insulting them, but low enough to where you're not causing them to lose heart. If you put it too high, they're going to all be like, I can't do that. I'm not even going to try. If you put it too low, it's not worth my time because anybody can do that. It's got to be in that sweet spot. And I want to try to help you guys see that when the Bible uses the word blameless, it's actually describing something that's not perfection. And it's also not really low either, but it is right there in that sweet spot that a Christian indwelt by Christ ought to be able to aim at, pray for, and to some degree... Display. Let me convince you of that. Uh, the Bible does say that we as human beings are hopeless sinners apart from grace. Totally depraved. Uh, every part of human beings is corrupted by sin. And therefore a human being cannot save themselves or even prepare themselves for salvation apart from grace. But sometimes we make a wrong jump from that. We think, okay, I am, as a Christian, still a hopeless sinner with nothing good in me. And that's only part true. Right? It's only partly true. Why would I say it's only partly true? You got God in you. Yeah, I mean, that's not, that's not bad. That's good. In fact, we just spent a whole sermon this morning talking about the new birth, meaning you have a new self brought to life by God in you. 
Now, it is true that in every part we still continue to have sin. We have remaining sin in every part that we have to fight. But it's not true that we are hopelessly given over to it anymore. We have been given life. We have been given a new life. We have been given new hope. That means that as Jesus Christ was blameless... If his spirit dwells in us, there is a kind of blamelessness that he shares with his people and that we ought to pray for and that we ought to seek. That's why the Bible describes a lot of people who are not Jesus as blameless. Did you know that? Noah was a blameless man. Now think about that. Was he? Okay, I, you know. I don't know. There was the whole thing with the tent and the sun and whatever happened there. That wasn't very blameless. And the curse that followed it, that didn't seem very blameless. Uh, Abraham is described in chapter 17 of Genesis as blameless. Well, there's the thing with Hagar and then the lying and then all that other, you know, hiding that he did. Job, in Job chapter 1, we read it this week, if you're reading your daily Bible reading with us, Job chapter 1, he was a blameless man. Well, so far, so good, but you get deeper into Job, and you realize, well, he wasn't perfect, that's for sure. Luke chapter 1 describes Zechariah as a blameless man. And then, two verses later, God strikes him mute for not believing God's promise. In 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, every elder and deacon of the church is required to be blameless. But y'all know the elders and the deacons of the church, (laughs) including myself. The Bible must mean something different than perfection. And I think it does. In Jesus, of course, the blamelessness was absolutely, spotlessly perfect. In us... The blamelessness is an expression of the pure sincerity that the newborn heart has by nature. It's the heart that is unmixed. That part of every Christian that is holy and only for God. Because the love of Christ has compelled us, that part of us wants God and God only in his glory. That's the blameless part. All those men, none of which were perfect, all the women in scripture also described that way, because Elizabeth was also described as blameless. None of them were actually perfect, but they were all in Christ. And in Christ they were counted perfect. And in Christ, they had the Holy Spirit who was making them and giving them a new heart of pure sincerity. Which means that, guess what? As a Christian, your good works can never save you. But it is also true that as a Christian, when you do good and when you obey the Lord, God is pleased with that obedience. More pleased with our obedience than he is with our disobedience. See, what I'm doing here is I'm trying to kind of, I'm trying to help you see that grace 
is not opposite of a changed life. Sometimes we, we think that. We think if we believe in grace alone, which we do emphatically, you're saved by grace alone, that that must mean that even as a Christian, everything I do is just awful and terrible and God's never pleased with it. That's false. Because of grace, he accepts it. He accepts it in Christ. Christ covers all the imperfections of it, but he nevertheless accepts it for its sincerity. A sincerity that he gives us. Blamelessness. David says, may my heart be blameless. What he was praying for was a sincere heart. And I want every one of us to recognize that the thing in our, if we want to live a life that glorifies God, that is the number one thing we need God to do for us. Is we need him to plant into our our heart sincerity. To take away hypocrisy. To take away divided motives and split decisions. And to give us a heart that is holy for him. That's actually possible by the Holy Spirit. Do y'all believe me? Y'all are awful quiet. Does that mean you disbelieve me? Or does it mean you're thinking? Or does it mean you're sleeping? (laughs) Could mean any of them, depending. But I really want us to think about it. When we say that nothing we do as Christians can ever be pleasing to God, we're killing all the motivation to do anything for God. Right? And... You know, I believe in grace, 100%. I'm a Calvinist, 100%. Died in the wool. But I believe that God, by his almighty grace, gives us a new nature. And God, as a father, accepts even the stumbling obedience of his children in Christ because of the sincerity that God gives us. If you don't believe me, pick up your hymnal and go to page 857. And you can read it out of the Westminster Confession of Faith. Exactly what I've just taught you. And this is where we'll end as the kids are about to come in. If you don't know, if you're new here, don't know, our Westminster Confession is our church's confession of our faith. Very old. Page 857. This is the chapter about good works. I'll read it to you and then we'll, we'll pray. I want you to think about it. Section 5 is where we'll start. Section 5, the V. The V under the good works section. We cannot by our best works merit pardon of sin or eternal life at the hand of God by reason of the great disproportion that is between them and the glory to come and the infinite distance that is between us and God whom by them we can neither profit nor satisfy for the debt of our former sins. But when we have done all we can, we have done but our duty and our unprofitable servants. And because, as they are good, they proceed from his spirit, and as they are wrought by us, they are defiled and mixed with so much weakness and imperfection that they cannot endure the severity of God's judgment, period. Now, that's where we normally stop. 
Read section 6. Notwithstanding, notwithstanding, the persons of believers are accepted through Christ. Their good works also are accepted in him. Not as though they were in this life wholly unblameable and unprovable in God's sight, but that he, looking upon them in his Son, is pleased to accept and reward that which is sincere, although accompanied with many weaknesses and imperfections. God delights in the obedience of his people because it comes from a God-given, sincere or blameless heart. 